0: Welcome, everyone. Here is the Carnegie Moscow Center English Language Podcast. My name is Alexander Kapuyev, I'm senior fellow and the host of this glorious project. Today, we're gonna talk about Russia's trade. That's how the nations get rich. And here we have two terrific guests to enlighten us on these issues. Tatiana Flegantova is deputy head of Institute for International Economics and Finance, one of the leading voice of trade policy in Russia.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And we have Dr. Yanis Kluge, who is Senior Associate of German Institute for International Security Affairs and also works on Russian economy and trade. Welcome.
2: Hello. Great to be here.
0: I think that we should start with you, Yanis. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling myself like a Russian coat of arms. I'm a double-headed eagle, turning my head <laughs> left and right. Uh, I should have two hands. So, Yanis... What do you see as the major developments and most visible shifts in Russian trade structure over, let's take Crimea annexation as the starting point? Like over the last five years, what has happened by and large?
2: That is an uh, interesting starting point. Uh, So you could actually say that over the last... Five years and before, of course, the Russian. F-
0: you know that it's not annexation, but reincorporation.
2: <laughs> okay. I know that there's, you know, terminology plays a role. Um, so since, uh, you know, as I often hear here in Moscow, the uh, 2014 events, um, you have. Seen That's a-, a great depiction. <laughs> 2014 events. So we have seen a lot of actually, um, up and down in, in Russian trade and you, you always tend to connect it to political developments, but actually, if you look at um, the amount of trade and the development, it's actually like 95 or 99 percent economic factors which are driving the development of trade. Um, so, in in the case of uh, of of Russia after 2014, um, I would say the main development is actually the the movement in the oil price, uh, the Russian economic crisis, and that this really. Depressed Russian imports and exports. So we had a huge fall in trade. And afterwards, starting in 2016, 2017, we have a slow recovery. Uh, we are not yet back in the pre-2014 levels, but uh, at the moment we have the slow recovery. Um this is so this is the the major trend, and the major drivers are economic. Um then, you know, if you look more long-term, and uh, I don't want to get ahead, but there's a more long-term trend in Russian trade, obviously, which is um it's true not only for Russia, but for, for all countries of the world is that uh, China plays an increasing role. So in Russia as well, uh, the, the role of China um, in the last 10 years basically doubled from around 10%. Uh, at least imports to around twenty percent. So this is a, a significant change. And at the same time, um, the the role of the European Union is uh, slightly declining from a bit more than fifty percent of uh, Russian foreign trade to a bit less than fifty percent of Russian trade. So this these are the two, let's say, uh, longer term developments. And then you know, if you if you're speaking about uh, the effects or the political uh, outcome of the 2014 events, uh, and you're speaking about uh, sanctions, especially. Uh, I would say that the most significant uh, change here is uh, uh, the, the Russian food embargo, so the counter sanctions. Um, you can actually see uh, the effect of these sanctions in the trade numbers, but only if you drill down to the specific category. So if you look overall, it is, it is not a huge change, a few percentage points actually that, that, uh, that there's a the decline, especially in agriculture export from the EU to Russia. But this is nothing that you would see on the first glance on the trade statistics. So, this is you can see politics, but only if you really drill down to the numbers.
0: Okay, so we have an effect of the prolonged, uh, let's call this stagnation in the Russian economy. That's reflected on import, and then oil prices is another factor. But I think geography was mentioned. So how much do we see that in the overall trade balance, Tatiana, uh, this growth in uh, China's or Asia Pacific roles? And by, by the way, is the pivot to Asia only about China? What's, what's happening with other? trade partners in Asia?
1: Actually, I will continue um, the topic you just uh, touched upon. And I would like to mention that definitely, despite all political tensions, uh, and despite all the economic sanctions, still European Union is uh, the major partner of Russian uh, in terms of trade, both uh, export and imports. And uh, right now, according to the statistics of uh, 2018, is just uh, 46% of uh, Russian trade turnover. So uh, we definitely see that uh, Russian trade with China is uh, growing, both in terms of export and imports. And um, I would say that in 2018, we could see the uh, huge increase both in export and imports around like uh, 39% uh, of Russian exports and 10% of uh, Chinese uh, exports to Russia and Eurasian Economic Union. But at the same time, uh, we see that still the share of China is not that large. And regarding the structure of Russian trade with China, we still see that the uh, large portion of it it's still crude oil and oil products followed probably by some machinery products and also some chemicals but uh, what we also can just mention and it's important actually to mention that uh, the trade uh, in agricultural products is increasing um the rest some thoughts regarding that because uh, we all know that a trade war between US and China could affect uh, trade also in agricultural products and Russian companies could uh, get the share which was lost by American companies in Chinese market but uh, some experts say that it wasn't the main reason why uh, some product uh, experts increased because um, we actually could witness uh, some uh, some measures taken by government, by Russian-Eurasian Economic Union governments and China in terms of getting access to particular uh, products markets of each other, and in this case, we should mention the market of uh, um, dairy products, poultry products, and also soybeans, uh, different oils, and we actually can see the particular trend, increasing trend of uh, trade between Russia, China, and Eurasian Economic Union as the whole integration body with the China in this products.
0: So w- w- when I look at the list of documents signed uh, during the meetings of heads of state or heads of government between Russia and China, I think that we had this tendency right after the 2014 events, mm-hmm. hashtag, uh, that there were like really dozens of MOUs. And like the recent trend of the last two years is that most of them, like the bulk, is really protocols on access for Russian agricultural products into the Chinese market, and these are kind of tackling the non-tariff barriers, standards, and it's really kind of taken a large uh, chunk of government's attention on like fixing those. Uh, so I think I think that's that's pretty pretty visible in the government activity um, on on structure of trade. I think that the last time I checked the diagrams of exports and imports to both European Union and China are basically the same. Uh, And I think Germany, if we take Germany as a separate country, is also very similar. So 70% of Russian exports are hydrocarbons, like with different proportion of gas and oil. And then comes wood and chemicals and metals. And then there is machinery. Mm. And then actually Russia sells more machinery to China because of weapons and because of the contracts that Russian nuclear uh, power plant builder Rosatom has in China. So it's basically, I think, not being a resource appendage to this or that market, but it's basically about the structure of Russia as an exporter. And then in terms of imports is also kind of very, very similar. So it's, it's logical. Why did Russia not balance you know, this trade, you mentioned that China is now 16%, European Union is 46 Is it just something historical that Russia was historically connected by pipelines and all the roads and infrastructure to, to Europe and China didn't exist as a market for commodities? Is that the major reason?
1: Um. I would like not to talk just about the crude oil, oil products, but more about uh, products with higher value added. And uh, there are particular measures taken by governments, as you said. But uh, what government can do is just to create favorable framework. And then it's up to business to decide whether and how and with whom to trade. So it doesn't happen just immediately. It needs some time. And uh, companies should understand the regulatory framework of the partner, uh, the interests of consumers. And it takes time. And we see right now, even in agricultural products, uh, the fact that uh, some markets uh, uh, have been kind of opened for Russian companies is also, from one side, it's uh, the benefit from uh, governmental programs and some contracts and some agreements uh, you just mentioned, uh, signed by the governments, uh, also including uh, dairy products, poultry, um, soya beans and other products, but also the um, measures taken by business because probably business uh, kind of understood how it's going on, uh, what's going on in that market particularly. And uh, what's important in this case is the transparency of regulation because uh, Chinese market in particular and Chinese regulation is particular is quite difficult to tackle if you're just entering the market even with, without Chinese language, it's even more complicated. And there was one step, I guess it was quite important, which was taken by Eurasian Economic Union, uh, the framework agreement signed between Eurasian Economic Union and uh, uh, China. Uh, definitely, it was a non-preferential one, so it didn't touch upon the problem of market access per se, uh, uh, decreasing the tariffs. But uh, it had some mm, uh, provisions on transparency, uh, both in terms of uh, customs procedures, sanitary phytosanitary measures, technical barriers to, t- to trade, and it's quite important. And besides that, besides the framework agreement itself, uh, I would like to mention the work uh, been, which uh, has been done by uh, Russian Expert Center because it's the primary role just to help and to encourage uh, Russian companies to enter foreign markets. And I guess in terms of uh, uh, increasing uh, share of Chinese market and Russian export structure, uh, this is uh, pretty important as well.
0: I think that the Eurasian Economic Union was mentioned, and that's, I don't know whether that's an elephant in the room or whoever, the Russian bear combined uh, with uh, other animals from other member states. but uh, Yanis, what's the European attitude towards EU? Is it a political complicating factor? Uh, is it something where, because the Russian narrative is that actually the mo- the role model for the Eurasian Economic Union is European Union. Mm-hmm. So a lot of regulation is taken from the European Union and the whole model of uh, Customs union and a space where labor and goods and services can move freely, and there is a big supranational regulation committee which is probably in its infancy uh, that 's very much what kind of we borrowed from the Europeans and that should help russia 's integration with with Europe. so how is that seen from from where you sit
2: I think the the views on the eurasian economic union um in Europe actually differ. There are are different views. There's like one more skeptical view, which would say that uh, the Eurasian Economic Union is actually more of a hegemonic tool, which is used by Russia to tie its neighbor closer to itself and limit their possibilities to have their independent trade agreements, for example, uh, with the European Union. And um, so the, the worry here is kind of that the Eurasian Economic Union is dominated by Russia, and it's kind of related to the fact that when the Eurasian Economic Union was created, that most of the external terrorists are actually Russia's former uh, external terrorists, which had you know were applied to, to the other member countries. This is a skeptical view, and then there's a maybe a more optimistic view, uh which is um you know the, the hope that the Eurasian Economic Union could actually develop into some kind of independent body. And it's somehow also embed and maybe to some degree constrain uh, Russian foreign trade policy, but also Russian foreign policy overall. So this is the optimistic uh, view. And in, in this case, it could also empower the smaller neighbors of Russia because, uh, you know, of the consensus principle. So so actually, you know, it, it also gives the opportunity for the smaller countries to have a say. And and then I would say there's like one, one more sophisticated optimistic view is that, OK, even if the Eurasian Economic Union was built as a hegemonic tool, it could still uh, like an unintended side effect develop into something independent. And in this case, it would make sense to closer cooperate with it and kind of uh, increase its weight and, and, you know, help it to become more independent and actually be that that structure that, uh, that you know, the EU maybe hopes that it might become at a certain point. At the moment, of course, uh, there is still a lot of work to be done for the Eurasian Economic Union. Everybody always, um, you know, emphasizes that it's a very young union. So there are still, um, so so it's not uh, the, the 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 customs union is not complete yet. It's like I think around one third of the goods, there are exceptions still going on. You have, also, of course, also the sanctions as a complicating factor. So there's a lot of uh, incoherence still within the Eurasian Economic Union, and um, it's still, you know needs to be seen over the next years in which direction it's going to develop.
0: Uh, Tatiana, uh, I think it's also interesting to think about the role of the Eurasian Union uh, in Russia's relationship with Asia. Because I remember when uh, Russia discussed an FTA with APEC, there was a question like, okay, but Russia doesn't now have sovereign rights to sign FTAs in goods with other parties, because the free trade areas are now under the jurisdiction of the Eurasian Economic Commission. So you have to get consensus view, and that gives Belarus, which has an entirely different structure and geography of trade, veto of your trade policy towards Asia-Pacific. So is that a burden or rather a boost because you're talking as one voice with 170 million people and a larger market?
1: Yeah, that's right, actually. And if you're talking about the aspirational goal of Free Trade Asia Pacific um, uh, agreement, so yeah, it was kind of border for Russia uh, to even start the discussions on the topic, not even the negotiations. But... Um, Talking about the integration agenda itself, I would say that actually, uh, according to our estimations, the integration, deeper integration within the union itself is uh, more beneficial for Russian partners, even for Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, even Belarus, whereas the integration with third partners including Asia Pacific region is of more interest for Russia and Kazakhstan. So uh, if we really want to uh, make it deeper to continue integration and sign new agreements with the uh, partners, probably just to balance it, the interests, we have to reach mutual concessions, both in terms of, um, integration with third partners and within integration within the Eurasian economic union. And actually your, yeah, Absolutely right, Alexander, because uh, we face the same difficulties, or not difficulties, but it's just the fact that free trade agreements in terms of goods uh, have to be signed uh, just on the level of Eurasian Economic Union. At the same time, uh, we still have uh, services markets regulated on the national basis. So uh, what happened, for example, with a uh, recent uh, agreement uh, between Eurasian Economic Union and Singapore? So we do have framework agreement, which consists of several parts. The first part is the free trade agreement on goods, which uh, has been signed on a uh, supranational level on the level of Eurasian Economic Union. And also we... We'll have several agreements on services. uh, One has been negotiated already. It's the agreement between Armenia and Singapore. And some other agreements, between bilateral agreements, will be negotiated soon, like finalized soon. So we do have this kind of uh, complicated structure. And another issue is also actually the interests of uh, particular eurasian economic union members to negotiate the free trade agreement because for example when we uh, even started the discussions on possibility to sign agreement with uh, china there were different also views from different member economies and our estimations for example show that Um, Generally, it will be beneficial for all Eurasian economic members and the highest um, benefits will be uh, for Russia and Kazakhstan. But if we go deeper uh, into specific products, specific services or specific industries, we will see particular losses uh, and they will be completely different for different economies. And the issue is like uh, when you negotiate free trade agreements, so you have a list of sensitive products, Uh, both from industrial ministry, ministry of industry and, uh, agricultural products list. But even there are five countries, uh, each like showing its own list of sensitive products. So there will be nothing to negotiate also. But uh, the issue that according to WTO rules, the free trade agreement should cover almost all trades, substantially all trades. So uh, it's a kind of difficult way how it should be done uh, if we are just talking about different sensitive products for different five countries. Yeah, and
0: all of the five countries are not known to be free trade champions. They are pretty protectionists.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: they're very powerful players in the elite who also want to protect their vested interests. Uh, so it's it's very interesting how Russia will learn to to live in such a complicated family and negotiate with its partners and within itself. Um, do we have any Trade agenda for talks with the European Union? Are any talks happening at all at whatever level? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the only agenda for high level talks I recall was how do we uh, go about DCFTA being signed by Ukraine? So that was part of the conversation between the uh, European Union and Russia but uh, so far on institutional level mm. since the summits are cancelled I don't see much of a discussion so what's the European take on it?
2: I think here you have to differentiate between um, technical consultations and so there's a lot of dialogue actually happening on the you know on the lower levels uh nothing with a you know big symbolic value that you can show to the outside but there's still you know there's coordination of different standards and regulations for businesses which are done which are happening all the time um, but if you are speaking about you know new agreements and uh, like this <clears throat> this big and uh, symbolic deals uh, you're absolutely right the, the last agreement uh, that was under negotiation. Was the new partnership agreement, uh, which was, you know, is, is now frozen since 2014. And um the, you know, the condition for this to be unfrozen would be obviously to to resolve the Ukraine crisis. So I don't see any progress on uh, on this front unless uh, this somehow happens. But. There's also, you know, one more, uh, maybe a bit deeper, uh, a mismatch or contradiction between how EU approaches trade agreements and how the Eurasian Economic Union approaches. Because, I mean, trade is in the DNA of the European Union, but also values are in the DNA. And whenever the EU makes a trade agreement, be it with Japan, Mercosur, you know, every trade agreement, you look in the preamble and you see that it's uh, there's uh, there are a few lines on certain values, democracy, human rights, and so on, so. Um, I think that there is a, in general, this has been, you know, there, this mismatch has been there for all of, you know, last 20 years for all negotiations between Russia and the EU. Um, but if you think now about a negotiation between the Eurasian Economic Union and the EU, I don't think that the Eurasian Economic Union has the mandate to sign something like this, uh, in the name of all these member states because it's, it's, it's supposed to be not political. And for the EU, all trade agreements are always also about values and it cannot have just a trade agreement just for uh, the economy. So there's this mismatch w- which would make it hard even if the Ukraine crisis is resolved.
0: Great news, I think, Tatiana. We should take it with a big grain of optimism because there's going to be no trade deal between China and the European Union. That's what I'm hearing from you <laughs> if you need to agree on values. <laughs> and then since Russia and China share either share a lot of values or we prefer not to talk about them and talk about pragmatic and uh, really substance uh, matters. So we gonna arrive at a limited treaty, whatever it is, much faster. Uh-
1: Actually, I believe that we do talk about common values with China in particular, but we are not ready to talk about trade and some pragmatic issues also. So our policies is really? a bit different.
0: Really? Yeah. And why is that?
1: Yeah, uh, I guess it's too sensitive for us for now, because uh, uh, as you can check the negotiations list, so which is currently in place. So who are our members, who are our partners? Vietnam, Singapore, uh, Israel, Iran, and some other, uh, not like key partners of Eurasian Economic Union. But if we talk about European Union or China or Korea, so the sensitive parts and sensitive list is even larger. So, uh, there, there is particular lobby of some companies, uh, which cannot, uh, like support signing the agreements, uh, real free trade agreement with, uh, larger partners uh, because, uh, it may, uh, lead to some losses for some industries.
0: So there is this tensions in, in the negative list that you mentioned uh, between industrial policy here in Russia and the, in other parts of the Eurasian Union and the free trade kind of zeal. Uh, and then there are powerful companies here in Russia that would block this agenda. Got you, that's...
1: Yeah, I would like just to mention that we joined WTO not long time ago and transition period just uh, finished this year in terms of uh, tariff regulation and to start something huge right now, like in 2019, is too early.
0: One side question uh, is how much expertise Russia has, like how many people are well versed in international trade. Uh, The anecdote that I always tell is about your team, Because I remember your team a couple of years ago, and that's a pretty consistent team. Uh, I think Tatiana's mentor is now head of department in the Ministry of the Economy. And uh, it's really when people have this impression of Russia as being a male dominated country. Well, in terms of trade it's totally not and i think that was a kind of mostly women or 90% women think tank with very sophisticated and smart russian women being the big brain behind the trade policy i think now the uh, the head of the international trade negotiations department at the ministry xenia Majorova, is also a woman so but uh my point was that uh, some of your colleagues have left to WTO Academy in Barcelona and are still there. How how much brain power does Russia have in the government, in think tank community to support a really ambitious and sophisticated trade policy?
1: I mean, I, I believe that we are getting some capacities already and still despite the fact that uh, the majority of the team is still like represented by women, but we do have the it's main... A good thing. It's yeah, a good thing. The main brain of Russian trade policy, Mr. Medvedkov, who was the leading part of the whole process of joining the WTO, and he's still uh, in charge. Do, in charge, yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: and that's Vladimir Putin that ultimately in charge of everything in this country, including its trade policy. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think that Part of the trade discussion that we have missed and which is so important and it's uh, very much in the news is digital trade. It's e-commerce. So what's happening there in terms of our outreach to our Asian partners? And, uh, is, is there anything happening with Europe? I'll start with you probably, Tatiana.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's quite interesting question, because actually in Russian trade policy agenda, it's not called digital trade, it's called e-commerce. And we follow the definition which uh, was uh, said by WTO, and actually the definition covers mainly trading products. Uh, but uh, what we see right now, and... Actually, it was uh, kind of uh, moved forward by the United States team is digital trade, and they include both trading products and trading services. And actually, the trading services agenda is even more complicated. And sometimes we think that it doesn't matter how to call the term. But uh, if we talk about the particular definition, uh, the... Most important thing about that is, uh, what do we understand behind that and which kind of regulations we'll be talking, uh, we will be talking about. And if we are talking about digital trade, uh, we are talking also about barriers to digital trade. And the first issue which comes to our mind is uh, data policies, localization, uh, data transfer and everything. And we know that there are particular, um, kind of, um, uh, changes in, uh, Russian policy and we understand that right now, according to Russian law, uh, personal data has to be, uh, localized within Russia. Yeah. Uh, we do allow to transfer data, it's not prohibited, but the uh, main copy should be based in Russia. And if we are talking about digital trade policy agenda on international uh, markets and international organization, it's usually two blocks of interest. Uh, First is represented by developed economies, uh, including Japan, including the United States of America, uh, some, some European countries as well, but with some limitations. And another block is represented by developing countries, including Russia and China. Uh, Despite the fact that Russia joined WTO as developed countries, still we are with the block of BRICS countries who are mainly developing ones. And in this case, I believe that uh, Russia, China and other uh, BRICS members may have common agenda. And this agenda may include not only like the issue of expanding our uh, experts of services and digital services per se, but mainly about common regulatory practices. Because we do have uh, similar sensitive issues, uh, we uh, may uh, create a common, uh, common agenda in terms of regulation. And the main thing about that, just from my point of view, is uh, to ensure the uh, competitiveness of our local business in terms of uh, increasing competition from uh, tran- transnational corporations and also information security which one which is one of the main points of fresh international agenda
0: and here we go back to the values question right because i think that the divide that you describe is not really between the developed and developing economies but it's the notion of sovereignty and information security and it's not just a divide between democracies and authoritarian regimes because the largest democracy in the world india has also very similar policies towards data localization the way china and russia hasn't same with brazil so i think that it's a very interesting divide here and it's really very much related to the protectionism and uh, the philosophy that, oh, we build this uh, wall of protectionism, we grow uh, our national champions, and then we are probably ready to compete. And then there are some political sensitivities in countries like China and Russia. The internet sovereignty law was just entering in force in Russia on November 1, so that's, I think, pretty much a landmark. Uh, do we have still, I think that should be the last question for us, Do we still have a common agenda in terms of regulation to talk between Europe and Russia? Probably in forums like G20 that relates to economy and finance and trade, or is it just climate? Or it takes another global economic crisis like the one we experienced a decade ago that we all jump in and we understand that we are in one boat, which is our... Our little universe
2: so first, maybe one sentence to the e commerce question. Um, I think that this is actually an area where Russia has something to offer and which could be a potential area of cooperation, but um, you know currently it's just overshadowed by the cybersecurity discussion, and this makes it very, very hard to to achieve any progress on uh, in this area uh, regarding regulation and trade overall. Um, I think that it would be too much to say that there's a common agenda. No, absolutely not. Um, there are, I would say, some overlapping interests. And uh, one particular case is uh, the role of the US dollar. So um, both Russia and the EU, you know, f- to some degree, also for different reasons. But you know, you would like to push the use of the euro internationally. Russia, you know, would get like to get rid of the dollar uh, also for obvious reasons. So there's an overlap. Um, it doesn't mean that there could be a really a common agenda developing out of this, but there is some, some potential, uh, for cooperation, for example, to transferring the energy trade between EU and Russia into euros. This would be one example. And then there are, I mean, there are always, uh, common agendas for states because, I mean, there, there are many economic processes happening in the world, which sort of undermine, uh, the control of states. Like, for example, you, you could speak about money laundering, cryptocurrencies, or you could speak about offshore financial financial centres, for example. So these uh, sort of uh, things that states would like to get a grip on, um, or, or, or taxation and taxation, that you don't have the the profit shifting and you know that, that your tax base is eroding. So here there's a natural common interest. It's not yet a common agenda. It's more a common agenda, I guess, of all states. Uh, so this is there's also an overlap, and then. Uh, finally of course, I would say that uh, I mean the, maybe the most acute problem at the moment is uh, the crisis in the WTO uh, because the dispute settlement mechanism you know could break down in December uh, will probably break down in, sep- in December uh, this year and um, I think that both Russia and the EU have an interest in, in, in keeping it alive actually um, it you know will be difficult to keep it alive in the current form. Um, but there could be at least some form of bilateral agreement to, to you know, keep respecting the verdicts uh, of the WTO, even if the, the the appellate body, so this this final uh, decision-making body in the WTO, ceases to function because uh, because no new judges are appointed. So I mean, on this area, there could also be some some common interest. But as I said again, a common agenda would probably be too much to say that.
0: Okay, my major uh, takeaway from this conversation is that Russia is not immune to global trends. Uh, Its share of trade with Asia is growing as, in particular with China, as in other economies. There might be some domestic roots and explanations for that, but it's an overall trend. And then the situation in global regulation, be it WTO or be it the state of the global economy, really affects Russia. But the trade per se also gets hostage to both the international dynamics and foreign policy discussions that Russia has with the EU and other partners. Or its outreach to China is not only economic but also geopolitical. And then from what I hear, it's also very much tied to the domestic political debate, be it cybersecurity, information security, or be the power of certain industrial groups that can really hijack the discussion about free trade and really affect the pace with which Russia opens up its economy. I think that's been a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Tatiana and Yanis. And I hope to see you both at some point in this podcast. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank
2: you.